The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber, Luscious Slicks and NICAD Earth Moving. In this episode, I do my first Skype interview with a man who has been a tireless worker for blood cancer charities. Neil Pennock has been described as one of St Vincent Hospital's greatest community supporters, raising close to half a million dollars for the haematology and bone marrow transplant unit, while also supporting nurses with postgraduate education through the TLR Foundation. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's Over the Bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Neil Pennock, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Now, you're a big charity fundraiser. Tell us all about the charity and how it all started. Well, look, it, it started five five years ago or six years ago when my partner was diagnosed with a, a form of um, a blood disease um, called MDS. Um, it, the treatment of which ended up being something called a, a stem cell or bone marrow transplant, which is a treatment pretty much of last resort. Sadly, he he did not make it. Um, and to honour his memory, I originally wanted to raise some money to set up a nursing scholarship. Um, Trace worked his entire life as a professional fundraiser, working for a number of charities, both in America and and when he moved to Australia, he worked for the Children's Hospital in Westmead and, and Mission Australia. And and ironically, he ended up applying for a job at the St. Vincent's Curran um, ho- uh, Foundation. And he ended up having to withdraw when he checked himself in as a patient to St. Vincent's Hospital. But I, Wish I'd spoken to him a lot more about fundraising now. <laughs> Sorry, back then, because that would have been really, really helpful. What have you learned through your fundraising? What have I learned? Yeah. Um, I've learned that people can be amazingly generous. Some people can be amazingly... What's the opposite of generous? <laughs> <laughs> There are some beautiful people out there. Um, I, I've, I've learned, really, I've learned a lot more about human beings than I ever thought I would. Some people that you, you don't think are going to help you in any way, shape or form just drop everything and shave everything. I'll get back to that later. Um, whereupon other people who are loaded with cash just aren't interested. There's, there's no rhyme and reason. Sometimes it has to be very personal to them and other people are just plain generous. So the generosity, especially of strangers, is is amazing, absolutely amazing. When you're first approaching someone, what's the general reaction that you get? Nowadays, I get people rolling their eyes and running the opposite direction. Um, we've we've been going for four years. Um, sorry, we've been going for five years now, and. It, it was a really interesting. I hate that word journey, but it really was a journey when. I started raising money to get a single nursing scholarship up and running. And I just thought about what Trace's mentality was, and that just wouldn't have been good enough. So we, we 
I think we, we raised somewhere like $50,000 towards nursing scholarships and we covered um, scholarships at the University of Sydney for about five, for a five year period. But, but soon after we started doing that, the hospital announced that they were um, going to remodel the bone marrow and stem cell transplant ward at St. Vincent's. And so I just brashly uh, approached them and said, how much to have a room named after him? And they laughed and said, oh, $300,000. So I said, holy shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I thought, how amazing would that be? How amazing would that be? What a legacy to leave him. Um, something that's going to help patients forever. And continually, there's going to be a plaque above the room. And anyway, so to, to start with, there's, there's a whole background on whilst he was even in hospital, he found out that the nurses were going to shave their heads as part of the leukemia's world's greatest shave. Um, and it was literally the day before he found that out, I had shaved his head. Um, purely out of uh, practicality. The hairs were falling out because of the chemo. They were going into the feeding tube and in, at night he'd, he'd be scratching and, and the feeding tube would start to be pulled out. So it was, anyway, so uh, when he found out that the nurses were trying to raise money overnight, he, he literally just said, how much have you raised? I think it was about $700. And I had been going into the hospital every day, not realizing that the nurses and the volunteers that were there with their buckets were collecting coins and, and notes for this event. And he also <laughs> then learned that there was a nurse on the ward who had agreed to shave their head if they'd reached their target. So within an hour, Trace had already decided that he would be shaving my head and that we would put our collective uh, heads together. And overnight, I think we raised $7,000. Wow. And the event was happening the next day. It, and I remember it specifically because it was Friday the 13th of March <laughs> um, 2015. And, and good things do happen on Friday the 13th. He lasted another four weeks after that. But I got to see some of the most incredible parts of humanity from those nurses, which is which is where this whole thing stems from. I have a lot of respect and admiration for people that that can do that job. I don't think I have the emotional strength to do that, um, or or would like the paycheck that they get either. So if we can help, if we can help them to fund education for those that want to specialize in that area then i'm all up for that so you're still raising money for the scholarship yes so it, it's an interesting one so I, I'll, I'll talk about the fundraising later if you're interested absolutely um, but we did raise the three hundred thousand dollars to have the room named after him and it was the same room that he actually had his treatment in in hospital it looks like a hotel room he would have loved it so but the fact that we raised three hundred thousand dollars is just amazing how does it and, make you feel um humble really emotional too um, because this is not me. I just happen to be the annoying one that organizes things. It's the, it's the friends and the, the family and the strangers that 
want to join in and help raise money that just puts everything in perspective. It really does. Um, so we reached we reached the three hundred thousand, and then I decided um, I spoke to the University of Sydney. I'd already had some communication with them because the money that we raised through the Arrow Bone Marrow Transplant Foundation for nursing scholarships. I approached them and said, look, I've, I've got this charity that we've set up now. Um, how much would we need to raise if we wanted to make this scholarship perpetual? Not just to help one or two nurses, but as soon as a nurse graduates, you then let somebody else in under Tracy's name. That that to me was brilliant. And, and they said $160,000, which when you've raised three hundred, you're like, well, still, it was like a holy shit moment, but <laughs> but we've already raised 300000 Can we keep the momentum going? And, um, and up until COVID, yes, yes, we did. We, um, we used the city to surf in Sydney. Um, we put on a marquee. I get to choose the beer and the wine at the end of it. So there's an added bonus. <laughs> You're not just raising money for nothing. <laughs> um, and it turns into a, a fantastic day. We, we raised $100,000. I had the pleasure of giving the wow. Dean of Nursing, one of those really stupidly, ridiculously large plastic checks. <laughs> <laughs> What's their reaction? Oh, they're, they're grateful. It, it's it's amazing. Are you talking about the University of Sydney? Absolutely, or yeah. Yeah, no, they're, they're really grateful. The, the reaction I usually get from people when I first say I'm going to do something is almost like, yes, of course. Yes, they're there, there, and and they're like until you start doing something, and they can see it's tangible and you actually mean it and you are going to follow through with it, then the reactions change. Um, I'm I'm told by a lot of people, especially when they lose um, a loved one, that there's all these great ideas of fundraising and stuff, and and they get to about ten percent and realizing it's quite hard and and kind of give up. Um, I'm too stubborn to give up. And because of Tracy's background in this fundraising world, it's an extra bonus. You know, I sometimes think that he's still there bopping around in the background making this happen because I have to pinch myself. But it also comes back to our, our friends. That the very first event that we put on to honor him was our own head shave. It made sense because that was the last charity event that he did. And so we ended up having 18 people. There was one in America. There was there was uh, friends of ours in Queensland who's <laughs> sitting right next to you. Um, and out of that, there was five women that shaved their heads. That's brave. Bald. No, 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 that's way brave. For, for a guy, no offense. It'll grow back in three months. We, we don't spend all that money on a haircut. But for the girls, they all have really long hair. And it's very confronting. It's it's more confronting if you're having chemo and, and are being treated for cancer and your hair falls out. So to do this by choice, um, and, and I think for all of those five women that shaved their hair off, um, they've all had personal experiences with friends or family members that have 
um, gone through chemo so they can see the real impact. But regardless, this is a choice. And some of that hair had been growing for decades. <laughs> um, but we, we raised $120,000 on that very first one, which was a huge boost. Did it surprise to, you how much is? Was... Are you kidding? I was hoping that we'd get to like two or three thousand dollars. I was actually hoping to get about ten. So, so to get over a hundred, we were like, "Oh my god, that's amazing!" But that in itself was a third of the way into funding that room at the hospital. So the next time, I, I work at um, a little company called AMP. And I have for 20 years. So when uh, they enough people knew what was happening with with Trace, so that when I finally went back to work, which was horrible for the first three months, um, the story obviously came out. I, I don't mind talking to people about it, especially after raising so much money. So I encouraged the team at AMP to get behind me. And they had, an, they had a, a strange event, which was, um, what's your goals for 2016? And I said, my goal was to raise $300,000. And they're like, for what? Mm. So I explained the story. They really helped. So we had the A&P team um, do the city to surf. So the A&P tent, they paid for everything for their employees. For those of them that wanted to raise money, they would raise money for St. Vincent's towards the Trace Ritchie. Um, patient room. I did something really dumb, which was I'd done the city to surf in 2010 with Trace, and we stopped at the first pub on the route and we drank a <laughs> bottle of wine. So, to honor him, I thought it would be a really clever idea to put a bottle of Pinot Gris in my camel pack, um, which I did drink en route. I will never go running and drinking again. Uh, <laughs> it took me over three and a half hours to do a 14-kilometer course. I narrowly missed out on seeing the company CEO at the time, the CFO and the CIO, all of which had to leave to go to a um, board meeting on a Sunday afternoon. And I turned up completely sloshed. <laughs> So I probably still have my job there because I was so late and missed them. <laughs> but crossing the finishing line, I was I was uh, in need of a toilet. I couldn't string a sentence together, and I was highly emotional. So, <laughs> but all so, in the spirit of things. All in the spirit of things. But um, there was a, I think there was about thirty-five people that helped raise money that first, um, that first city to surf and the amp foundation doubled the donations of people who work uh, the employees at amp so we we raised another forty thousand dollars from that which was incredible were you surprised that your employer got so involved i was i, I was so with most corporate foundations they have a very clear um, set of guidelines as to which charities they will support. And health doesn't really appear in a lot of them because once you start supporting one, um, so they won't, it, it will never be, my foundation will never be on the list of their charities they support, but they will support the employees and their choices in their charities. Um, so I've been incredibly grateful for them, incredibly grateful. How's it changed your 
relationship with your co-workers because they have got in and supported you like that? Um, it's, it's interesting. I work in the project world. Um, so every two, three years, the faces that I work with do change. So the core people are still there and, and see me. But it's quite interesting. There are a group that will do anything that I suggest. You know, we've done the head shave. We've, we've done the city to surf. We've even jumped out of an aeroplane and done skydiving as a fundraiser. And I hate heights. So not only did I have to do that, I had to do it twice because the first one was a dry run. And oh, really? um, and I'd gone out the night before and drunk way too much um, spirits because I f- figured I might die the next day anyway. And so <laughs> the poor tandem guy said my breath really stunk. Um, we'll never do that again either. Um, <laughs> but look, there is a core group that will follow me and do everything, um, especially those that knew Trace. But then there's another group of people that just, they've got a personal connection to blood cancer or the, or they've been through any type of cancer and understand just how important the nurses are. Um, so it's, but then there are some people that just, no, I'm not interested. I don't even want to donate. Um, yeah, because some people, they, they just say, I'm not doing that, but here, have some cash, which is which is lovely. You know, so it's a tax deduction for those people as well. Well, I really want to cover that uh, a little bit later, but I'll, talk us through the skydive. You didn't like Heinz. Talk oh, us through what happened. <laughs> well, I got drunk the night before. That that did help the first time. Um, the second time when we did it with the actual fundraising event, obviously I'm leading this group of people. So I was totally stone cold sober, which I think was actually worse. <laughs> Um, you go in groups because I think we had about 16 people do this, a couple of which that hate heights, some of which thought they hated heights, but absolutely loved it and can't wait to do it again, which is nuts in my book. Um, but look, you, you, you get weighed, which is awkward because (laughs) it's it's public. (laughs) You get matched with someone who's roughly the same size as you. Um, they load you onto the plane. Now, if you're the first person, um, sorry, if you're the last person to get on, you are the first person out. If I had known that, I wouldn't have gone last. Because when you're the first person, what they do, they, they literally sit, they sit on the edge, you're in their lap, so you're dangling out of this little propeller plane. <laughs> literally dangling. And all you can see is like, well, ground, very, very, very far away. And they do their temperature checks, they do their wind checks. And and that wasn't the point that I thought I was going to vomit. <laughs> um, that came later when we, we fell out of the plane, as I'd like to describe it. Um, the rush that people, some people have, yeah, petrifying for me, <laughs> absolutely petrifying. We hit a cloud, so all of a sudden you're not just petrified and going to the you know the Earth at 9.81 meters per second squared, I believe. But then also there's a whiteout, and all you can think is, or all I could think was, what if we hit a bird? Why would a bird be up here? What if we hit a plane? Like all these stupid things, and then you come out the cloud and you realize how fast you're going. 
your skin is flapping. <laughs> yeah. And and then all of a sudden there's a massive jerk when he pulls the um when he pulls the chute, which thankfully works. And that was the point I wanted to <laughs> I think there's a photo of him. He had a little um GoPro on his wrist and there's a photo of me going mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, but very close. <laughs> and then then you just sail very serenely down and, you know, the guy said, would you like to steer? And I'm like, hell no, just <laughs> get me down. <laughs> but look, there are some of us that, some of the group really enjoyed it and couldn't wait to go back again. One of the group, unfortunately, that there was a bit of a, a flap on one of the cords that, they just tucked in and you're supposed to hold it. So he grabbed it and it came off and he literally thought he was going to die. So by the time <laughs> he hit the ground, he was white, maybe gray, um, and just said, never again. I'm like, I'm with you, never again. But you know what? We raised $35,000 on that time. Um, so me saying I'll never do something again, if it raises money, then of course I, I can't say no even if I don't want to. <laughs> Being on the ground is a lot easier, and having a bar at the end of a 14-kilometre trek is, is perfect. Sounds like you need a drinking thing to um, raise money. Yes, I have thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> what other things do you plan as far as fundraising goes? What Have you got ideas of different things that you can use to raise money? It, it's an interesting one because I thought at the end and it was supposed to happen last year one more city to surf really go hard the city to surf before last we raised we had 88 people so over the years or over the four years the numbers are just growing because we make it into a fun event we encourage the doctors and nurses to join us as well so you can really see where the money goes and it's really lucky for us because i've got some very dear friends um, and directors of the board, we put in the money to fund the overhead. So every single dollar that gets donated when we do the City to Surf or, or any of those events goes directly to that because we, we cover everything else. We were supposed to finish last year and that's when I was going to put up my fundraising cap because the next thing and the major focus from now on is going to be recruitment of the next generation of stem cell donors onto the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry. And for that, we're working with the University of Sydney to start with, to set up a, a program um, called Osmara that recruits university students that if we set it up correctly to begin with, it's gonna be repeatable and sustainable and expandable to other universities and sports clubs and, and everything else. And the funding that we need for that, we can actually apply for grants for once I find a good grant writer, because that's not my skill set. But we will still try and raise money. I think the City to Serve has turned into such, well, pre-COVID, had turned into such an enjoyable race. You're doing, you're walking or crawling or those crazy people that run 14 kilometers and I've got a good theory about this. My running got better over time because you knew there was a bar there. 
So the earlier you, you have to be out by three o'clock in the afternoon. So the earlier you get there, the more fun you can have when you're there. <laughs> and that seems, from what you're saying, a an underlying theme for what you're doing. You're having fun while you're doing it. That's what it's about. Like what we're ultimately trying to do and trying to help is just so serious that you've got to interject as much fun into everything else so that you can tackle the serious issues and hopefully encourage more people to return and to support you into the future. He's obviously had a very big impression of your life, quite an understatement. Talk about Trace. Let's find out about the man. The man himself, he he was born in a farm in Oklahoma, west of Oklahoma City moved out to San Diego, well, Santa Barbara, then San Diego, and started his, um, his journalism career, went, or a journalism degree, went directly into fundraising. He knew from a very early age that he wanted to be a fundraiser and to work in the nonprofit world. I know he worked for um, Susan Coleman Foundation. I, I hope I, I probably said that wrong, but it's a, a massive breast cancer charity over there. Um, there was a hospice he worked for. But part of his fundraising was he actually won a scholarship for the through the Fundraising Institute of Australia, FIA. And he flew into Sydney. I have no idea on the year, but he it was being held in Adelaide. And he won a scholarship with airfares and accommodation. And he flew through Sydney to Adelaide. And on the way back... He met someone who's one of my best friends years and years ago. So he, Tracy, fell in love with Australia um, there and then. So he came back for his 40th birthday in 2005, and that's where we were introduced. And um, yeah, we we clearly liked each other and. It was his sister who was there with him that I became immensely, immensely dear friends with. And, and still to this day, a year had passed and she was leaving Oklahoma to go and spend the long weekend with her brother in San Diego and said, hey, do you want to come over and play? I'm like, well, as it happened, I was visiting my friends and family in the UK and so I said, well, I can just change my ticket and do around the world. So there I was at San Diego Airport um, being met by Tracy's sister, Brenda, and Trace. And I, that's when we got together. Um, I didn't tell my work that I wasn't coming back for a couple of weeks. I had my computer with me. I could work remotely, which is ironic now when we look about how we're now working around the world i just had to start working a lot earlier <laughs> but we started making trips backwards and forwards between california and sydney trips to the u.s especially to san diego involve a stop in los angeles now, i had some friends from sydney friends that ended up moving to la so it was always a fun trip for me but i also had um a dear friend of mine who worked for Qantas and put me on something called staff travel. So it was really nice for me to be able to fly business class at the fraction of the price, whereupon Trace would have to, 
spend 14 hours in economy to, to come to Sydney. But we, we did that for an entire year before he decided that he wanted to move and relocate to Sydney, which obviously was wonderful. Um, we would still go back to, uh, to Oklahoma for Christmases and, and Thanksgiving, but we had to divvy it up between spending time with family here. And so Thanksgiving is always one in the US and Christmases in Australia, which was very bizarre for him because, you know, Christmas is all snow and, and cold. <laughs> it's not like that here. But he acclimatized to Sydney incredibly, incredibly well. And then to get um, to get work working in the non-profit section uh, was fantastic for him before he then went to um, Children's Hospital Westmead, which I think was probably the most or one of the most challenging jobs for him to be working around and for sick children is yeah it, it takes a it takes a very big person to do that kind of work as well but what what can i tell you he was a very extravagant little guy i say little guy he was still taller than, than me <laughs> <laughs> but um on on one of those one of those days we decided that we would go to Tahiti and between us we worked out how much room we had on our credit cards and went bugger it let's do five star so we would go on these excursions and blow the whole budget and then spend the rest of the year repaying it um, another year we went to Hamilton and Hayman Island and pretended we were you know very well off which <laughs> was never the case but met some amazing people he was a very happy very happy little guy who attracted other people around him wherever we went so when when we started or well, when i started fundraising that's half the reason why people want to help because they were already endeared to his heart and his sister even his sister flew back to Sydney. Um, she was due to come back twice last year, once for my 50th and once for the city to surf, which clearly didn't happen because of COVID. Sorry. what? <laughs> That's all right. Now, you talk about COVID. It's really affected your fundraising. How are you working around it now? It was really bizarre. Um, I, I got a little down last year. Having being so close to that goal of, of making that scholarship perpetual, and, and the way the scholarship works is that once you hit your $160,000, that goes into an endowment. And so it needs to be there for 12 months before it accrues interest, and then the first scholarship has been handed out. So we've already started helping people by other donations and put nurses through. So we have nurses right now who are studying for their degree in, in uh, master's degree in cancer and hematology nursing but at the same time we were developing this program to which mirrors uh, a recruitment program in the UK called Marrow, ours is called Osmarrow where every year at university we have a whole influx of these 18 to 30 year olds and we can show them how easy it is to join a stem cell 
um, registry. It's just a simple cheek swab and how easy it is to donate stem cells. It's not the painful experience most people imagine it would be. Um, and it always comes back to the fact that if there had been a, a better donor out there from Trace, then he could still be here with us. But if people don't know about it... Anyway, so, so last year when COVID hit, um, I was devastated. And it's purely selfish. Like, we were so close, like $60,000, and then I can stop hassling people to jump out of planes, shave their heads, or or run the 14 kilometers on the city to surf. And effectively, I was going to hang up my fundraising hat um, and then continue to do the city to surf and then put that money towards additional nursing scholarships or research that the nurses wanted to carry out um, into GVHD and, and other stem cell transplant related topics. So both the city to surf and the face-to-face -face recruitment drives completely finished, completely put on hold for obvious reasons. Um, you know, there's people around the world, especially in America and England and Europe and well, South America, all around the world dropping dead. And here am I pissed off <laughs> that I can't get a group of 100 people. I mean, the city to surf has 80,000 people plus another 10,000 waiting for their friends and family at, at, the, at the end of Bondi Beach. And here's me getting upset that we're not going to be able to do our, our city to surf or face to face. Um, so look, the, the way the city to surf adapted this year, they made it a virtual event. I mean, they, they got less than 10% of the people they would normally. But I did it with my my poor flatmate who's endured everything. One of my best friends who has shaved her head twice, has jumped out of a plane twice and done the city to surf four times now. Um, so me and her got together and this this last city to surf you just get an app so you still have to cover 14 kilometers we were just very lucky that we timed it so that there would be a bar at the end <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the bar that i was planning on going to there was actually a pop-up bar on circular key in the botanical gardens that we literally had 500 meters to go so we walked 250 meters one direction and then she's like no we're going back to that bar but it gave you the map of where you would be if you were virtually walking between Hyde Park and Bondi Beach and also it flipped over to the map of where you've actually walked so it was only after we did and we still raised raised some money um, and I turned 50 in the middle of the pandemic last year as well. So I think we got, I think we raised $20,000 just from having a birthday. Still significant. Like, oh, it's massive. I, I'd turn 50 every year if that happened. <laughs> um, but we were able to fund an additional nurse because of that in this interim. It was clear that we weren't going to be raising the $60,000 this year. Uh, sorry, last year. It's absolutely clear. There's nothing, there's no way we would want to put anyone at risk by being in a crowd that size. I mean, it, it really is just an amazing sight to see when you see 80,000 people at the start line trying to run. I mean, trying to run is hard anyway. But, but yeah, doing it virtually, just the two of us, was a, it was a huge, it was hugely underwhelming. I can't lie. 
<laughs> you know, crossing a finishing line that's not there, having people run with you that you know some of which are raising money for whatever charity that, and whatever cause they want to raise money for. But it did get me thinking that COVID is not going anywhere. We have to learn to adapt to this. So if we are going to be raising money this year, and the city to surf is still going ahead, I just don't think it will be starting in Hyde Park and finishing in Bondi Junction. There's going to be a cap on groups of people. So if we can get two or three groups of people, there's there's a bay um, west of Sydney, which is exactly seven kilometers. So I had an idea of this year, what we might do is do something and call it the double bay run and then try and get people to, and then you can walk around the lake. It's pretty, we can put socially distant tents up. I'll still get to choose the beer and wine. No question <laughs> about that. So there'll still be that incentive, but it, it will be outdoors. It will be smaller, but, but it's doable. We are going to learn to, well, we're going to have to learn to adapt even once the vaccines comes out. The biggest upset for me with COVID was knowing that what we're trying to do by getting the 18 to 30 year olds to sign up to the Australian, uh, the Australian bone marrow donor registry is it's been highlighted because of COVID just how important that is. There's 175,000 people currently registered in Australia, on the Australian registry. And there, there are there are tons of registries. Every every developed nation in the world has at least one bone marrow or stem cell registry. 90% of people in Australia needing a bone marrow transplant from a donor, 90% of those people rely on those cells coming from overseas. Wow. So it's the most bizarre thing in the world. What makes Australia so fantastic is its diversity. But what limits us when it comes to finding donors is also its diversity because not that many people are on the registry. Most people don't even know about it. Um, I've actually donated stem cells back in 2004. So I've been through the process and I know that it's it's not a pain. I mean, sure, there's needles. You have a needle in each arm. There's a machine called the apheresis machine that's behind you that literally sieves out the stem cells and puts the blood back in the other arm. Underwhelming is the word that I use to describe that and boring. At the time, this was way before iPads and iPhones. They had a TV playing <laughs> on the wall and it was a back-to-back a -back sex and the city marathon. So I can't, I just, five hours of... Sarah Jessica Parker like, in the oh, background, yeah. <laughs> cannot do that, really. But what it, the things, the transport of stem cells from overseas registries and overseas um, people, they were hand-delivered, they were hand-couriered by plane to that hospital where the person is waiting. There's only a 75-hour window that those stem cells are viable. So they had to start thinking about, can we cryogenically freeze them? How can we get them here? And so a lot of the stem cell transplants have been put on hold um, whilst they try and work out the logistics of how it's going to happen. So it's just highlighted the need to get as many new people on the registry as possible. It's important to get more people to donate. And 
what would you suggest to people that wants to, how do they find out about it? Well, let me tell you a, bit, a little bit about the process. You will only donate if you come up as a match to someone that needs it. So it's not like blood where you can donate and they'll store it. You, you don't store stem cells. So what you need to do is be registered. And what they do is just do a cheek swap. You can do this. It's all online now. It, it really, if I, I know I've set up the page on tlr.org.au that's got links to absolutely everything. But you sign up, you get a kit in the post. It's got four cheek swaps. You literally, 30 seconds, scrape it around, a couple of the cells come off your cheek, and they will use that to test your tissue type. Now, you can only donate to someone who has a very similar tissue type to you. So right now, only one in 1,500 people are ever going to be called up to really? be a donor. And your stem cells can go to anyone around the world. Um, and you just go and uh, donate them and they'll end up on a plane. Well, COVID permitting, of course. Um, so once you get onto that registry, you'll know that you can only donate to someone with the same. It comes down to your genetics. It comes down to your ethnic background. And this is why I say Australia is so diverse and when people from two different ethnic backgrounds get together and have children, it makes it that harder to find someone with the same tissue type because you inherit half of those genes from your mom and half of them from your dad. They're, they're called HLAs, human leukocyte antigens. They're, they're just little proteins on the cell surface and it's so specific. Um, if you're not a right match, then what will happen is when you give those stem cells, that person then takes on that immune system of the donor. And if you're not the same tissue type, that new immune system effectively attacks the patient from the inside out. Now that's what happened to Trace. It was the most horrific thing I've ever seen. And he, he went through it with such grace and with such gratitude. He had no other choice. When someone needs a transplant, they'll the doctors will immediately go to your brothers and your sisters because there's a 25% chance you are going to be the perfect match because of those if you share the same parents. But again, there's a 75% chance you're not going to be a match. And that's why his sister Brenda was just devastated when she had really hoped that she would do anything for her brother anyway, but she thought she would be able to, to give the stem cells. And it's a hard thing for people to understand that it's not like the same as your blood group. It, it's really specific. But all you need to do is register. Um, if you do come up as a match for someone who needs it, then the registry will contact you and you will have to go through a blood test and they will make sure that you're physically fit. I mean, they care about the donor just as much as they care about the patient. They're not gonna put either at risk. Um, and But if you do pass all of those tests, then Here's the amazing thing. That donor could be the only person in the world that can save that patient. It's an amazing thing. I was literally talking to one of the apheresis nurses this morning for, at St. Vincent's, and I asked her, I said, what's the general feeling of someone that's sitting there in that chair? 
And I know, I told you, it was the Sex and the City thing. It was underwhelming <laughs> and boring for me. Um, now you've got iPads and, and iPhones and stuff. It's a lot easier. But I said, what's the overwhelming feeling of those people that knowing that they're going to potentially save someone's life? And she said they're excited and they enjoy the process because it's not painful. And, and they know that what they're doing is it's so important. And more importantly, they know that they are the potentially the only person on this entire planet that could save someone's life from just sitting there in a chair with a couple of needles in you. Gives me chills, just the thought of it. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that, obviously, because you, you've got to have daily injections for five days, um, four or five days into your stomach that make you overly produce stem cells from your bone marrow. So the olden days used to be people still talk to me about this idea they have of someone with a corkscrew and a mallet going into your hip bone and, and like wrenching out some <laughs> some bone marrow. It does, obviously, it's not as gruesome as that, but for, for 10% of the people, they still will want to put a big-ass needle in your hip bone and suck a bit out, but you will be out for the count. I think if I had the choice right now, I would probably prefer that because it's an hour. <laughs> rather than four or five hours sitting there. But yeah, it, they make you overly produce stem cells so your your bone marrow goes into hyperdrive. And the stem cells, before they differentiate into the blood cells, it leaches out into your blood system. Whoever thought of this is just a genius. But you literally sit there, the blood comes out from a needle in one arm, sieves out the stem cells, and everything else goes back in. So it's not even like giving blood where you're slightly anemic at the end and you need that, that sugary drink and a, and a biscuit. But I think if you do that, you need more than a bloody biscuit, that's for sure. <laughs> How <laughs> did you be... feel afterwards when you'd actually done it? Uh, despite what no. you'd gone through with Sarah Jessica Parker, but how did you actually feel? <laughs> oh, look, I, I wasn't donating my stem cells. I just went through the process um, at the hospital for a genetic, I've got a biology background, but I did it for a, one of the doctors who was conducting experiments, um, an experiment, and I turned out to be in the placebo group anyway, but it was still, they needed to harvest stem cells. So it, it was fine. By day five, by, day, by the day that you actually donate, your joints hurt a little bit, like because they are overly producing stem cells. Your big joints, like your hips and your arms, it's like you've done a massive gym workout the day before and you probably haven't been to the gym in a week or six years. <laughs> um, so look, there, there's a certain amount of soreness that comes from it. But if that's, if that's the only downside and you're potentially saving the life of someone that's going to die without your help, then I love hearing those stories. I just absolutely adore hearing those stories because ultimately you're doing this, unless it's a brother or a sister, you're doing this for a complete stranger. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to ask. Is there any connection between the person that receives the, um, the transplant and the other person mm -hmm. who donates? Well, again, if, if there is a family member that needs it, they will go throughout your your entire family is generally when the entire family wants to join the Australian bone marrow donor registry anyway to, to feel like they're doing something. But again, the chances of you being a perfect match, if you're an identical twin, score, lucky score. 
Um, but again, there's a 75% chance that your brother or your sister are not going to be a match. So you sign up to this registry and chances are you're going to be donating to a complete stranger anywhere around the world. Um, there's some privacy issues, obviously, um, where the, the recipient can ask the information or they can pass on a thank you card to that donor. And then it has to be a number of years, I believe it's two years, before there's any chance of those two even meeting. But when they do meet, those videos are amazing. There's a, a charity in the UK called the Anthony Nolan Trust. And they are the world's first bone marrow or donor registry. Um, they're the oldest, of the, the first one in the world. And they've got so many stories um, on video on YouTube. You can see where patients get to meet the person that saved their life. It's a, it's a hugely emotional watch, let me tell you. All the hairs on my arm still, they're, they're all going funny now. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, it's the same as you donating blood in the fact that, that, that you're, you don't know where your blood goes to. Stem cells, it's very individual. Like your stem cells are only going to save one particular person. And that's, the, that's what we're working on next. If we're going to try and encourage this 18 to 30-year age group, the only reason why we've started with the University of Sydney as our first site is that they kind of fit the 18 to 30 age group. There's a new influx every single year, but ultimately we would love to get more people, whether they be in TAFEs, we can educate people as they leave school, um, and working with the Australian Bone Marrow Donor Registry themselves, um, sports clubs, I mean, any, anywhere. And the interesting thing, which is a really hard conversation to initially have, is the fact that males, guys are shit at joining, can I say shit? So <laughs> they are terrible at joining the registry. They are so afraid of needles they are so afraid of the connotations. Whereupon girls, they're like, yeah, I'll sign up. Now, it's interesting. Once a girl becomes pregnant, it changes their internal histology. Her, her immune system effectively goes into overdrive so as to not attack that growing baby. And from that point, even though your tissue type remains identical, the risk to that patient increases. So they will always try and pick a male over a female if there is a choice. Really? And it's it's only if there, if there is a choice. And they know that the younger people provide the best um, donors because they provide the patient with the best transplant outcome. So it's, it's fascinating stuff. But males aged 18 to 30 only represent 4% of the people that are on the Australian registry. So the best, most ideal donors only represent 4%. That is shit, sorry, that's that's terrible. So we, we are now trying to focus on getting young guys. And the only way we can do this is through education. We've got to physically show people that sitting in that chair with a needle in each arm, that's it. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be a hard slog, but we're determined. We're determined to try and make this happen. You talk about education. What do you think you'll do to make it happen? 
Uh, look, right now, especially because of COVID, it means that education has to be through digital format. So there will be campaigns where we actively encourage people to sign up. We're learning about QR codes as a really quick and easy way for people to just swipe their phone, like like the COVID sign-in that we have here in New South Wales or around Australia, I guess. Um, you walk into a restaurant, there's a QR code. We need that kind of information so that people who are interested, it takes them to a link and it shows them the process and says sign up here. We're going to be applying for grants so that we can fund professional videos, just short snippets, to actually show people what the process is, to show people the kind of patients that need their help, and to have some emotional stories. But more importantly, just this is it. That's going to be a slogan that I just want to use. Like, is that all? Like, is that all it takes? So for all the guys that are like, oh, no, I couldn't do that because of the needles. Well, talk to a woman about childbirth and then let's have that conversation <laughs> again. Especially when the girls are literally, you don't even have to finish the, the pitch. Girls will sign up. They're like, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and we have to also be careful because we don't want people to sign up to the registry. And then if they do come up as a match, back out. Because that's just as bad mm. as not signing up in the first. In fact, I'd rather you would just be honest and say, no, I don't want to do it. I'll judge you later separately in my own time, not publicly. <laughs> it's amazing. You obviously have a lot of passion for this. How's the whole experience of losing Trace and all the fundraising? How's it all changed you as a person? Um, I've learnt that grief is a horrible beast it doesn't matter how many years something's happened that you've lost someone it can it can rear its ugly head at any time it can be a smell it can be uh, music it, it can be a feeling it can be a tv show or a movie it can it can still be just as intense as it was five years ago um I've also learned that I don't care if I cry in public. So what? <laughs> um, it's taught me that I hate public speaking. It's one of those awful things like jumping out of plane. I, I <laughs> literally have thrown up in my mouth whilst giving a speech before and had to swallow it. It's just, it scares me. So I've spent a lot of time in the last five years going to, to courses at NIDA, uh, public speaking courses, um, to learn how to get a message across without looking like a complete buffoon. And also learning it doesn't matter if you look like a complete fool, as long as it's from the heart. I've also learned because of Trace, which is kind of silly that I didn't know this before, but nurses are so important to the treatment of any patient um, and for us to want to help those that have decided they want to specialize in something then why the hell aren't we giving them scholarships I'd love to give every nurse that wants to do this course a scholarship if I could and that's why I'm still involved with the Arrow Bone Marrow Transplant Foundation because they offer the same thing oh, what what else it's it can be very lonely sometimes mm. um 
but being so close to his family still. And it's really interesting for me. Clearly, he's a man, I'm a man, I'm part of the LGBT community. Going to Oklahoma, which is one of the Trump-loving reddest states <laughs> in, in America for, for Thanksgiving and other things, and sitting there at having tried not to have conversations around politics at the table is <laughs> been uh, being so close to them has really helped it. And, and I still, this is the longest time I've gone without being on a plane to Dallas and then on to Oklahoma. It's, I am very grateful for um, technology though. Let me tell you, yeah. the, uh, doing this right now on, on Skype, we've got Skype, we've got Teams, we've got Zooms, it has changed the world um, for the better, I, I think. So there are some goods to come out of this. Um, as far as Trace goes, it does make me feel good. It does make me feel proud because I think he would be amazed. He, he always used to laugh at me and roll his eyes and say, you'll always, if you fell out of a building, you'll land on your feet. <laughs> um, there was a hint of jealousy there, but a lot of love. And I would, I think he would be an emotional basket case right now, knowing that we've got this room with his name on, that we've got nurses out there that have been educated because of his scholarship and knowing that we're going to try and find some new stem cell donors that are going to help people in his shoes and give them a better outcome than him. It was interesting you said you'd been talking to a nurse this morning, only this morning. And yeah. what's your relationship with these nurses? Do you have much to do with them? I, I do. Look, I have so much love for those. I've, I've seen... What they do on a daily basis, on an hourly basis, being part of the Arrow Foundation as well, I, I'd like to make sure that the nurses know that there are scholarships out there that if they do want, and this is specifically for cancer and hematology nurses. So once again, I'm being quite selfish, but I'm targeting only those people that are going to treat patients with blood cancers. I spend a... Um, I'd probably go to the Kinghorn Cancer Center, one of the treatment centers, um, at least every two months. And I always bump into Tracy's old doctor, Sam Millican. He's just such a wonderful human being. Um, but I always bump into the nurses there. And, and they know what I'm trying to do to help. Um, it's not just about helping them, it's about letting them know that there are options and to encourage them to... Um, to better treat patients. I, I think nurses are probably the unsung heroes. Doctors are wonderful. Please don't get me wrong. Sorry, Sam. Um, <laughs> they, but they know, I hope they know that they do such a wonderful job. It's, I think nurses have got such a lot of knowledge that if harnessed can be used to not just help patients go through the transplant process and, and treatment process, but also help the carers, the families, the friends, the partners, the, the visitors, if they can see things that need improving and can think or can be encouraged to, to explain how they can improve it, we can actually improve patient outcomes 
into the future and they can be a big part of that so i'm a big proponent of, of supporting that as well do you find that uh what you've done with your fundraising is how you dealt with your grief yes uh without a doubt having this to sink my mind into i mean look when when i went back to work obviously i took some time off when i went back to work i, I probably spent most of the day in the bathrooms bawling my eyes out trying to remember how to function as a human being again let alone at, at a <laughs> superannuation and wealth management insurance company <laughs> um i think my my bosses were incredibly supportive but it's only when i got into the fundraising that i could focus my mind and stop those waves of grief i mean they still come don't please don't get me wrong for anyone out there that that has lost someone it's it's a horror there's nothing you can do about it it's like it's like the nastiest cloud that can or, or wave that can pop out of anywhere at any time i think with time they they can be just as intense but the duration between those times um gets easier and, and gets further and further apart the feelings don't change and i've got pictures of trace all over the place so he's with me constantly on a daily basis in fact there's one in my bathroom which is a bit creepy i really should find a better <laughs> place for that um but this is this is the inspiration that i've needed to get through and if something good has come out of it then brilliant what do you think he'd that. say to you if he was talking to you now if he was in the i room? know exactly what he would say to me he would call me a little shit and say fundraising was my thing of course <laughs> you're good at it <laughs> Tongue in cheek, of course. You'd probably also tell me what I'm doing wrong and how I could maximize <laughs> my fundraising with ideas. He had the most amazing ideas, and I know that there's a folder somewhere in Canada with a lot of his ideas for one of his previous charities that I'm I'm looking forward to jumping on a plane and retrieving that and reading it. Is there any uh, fundraising fatigue that you've experienced? Because you really have been pretty full on at it. Well, it, no, not not really, because I know that there's an end goal, there's an end game, and having these goals really holds you to account. And it's a, it's the most bizarre thing. One of the my former CIO at AMP ended up giving a speech I listened to, and and it was all about this choosing a goal. And I'm like, well, I didn't choose this goal. This goal chose me. But having a goal has been really it's been really awesome. And then we, we ticked the first one and the second one is supposed to have an end date. So after last August, that was it. I'm supposed to have just hung up. Or we can still do the city to surf every year because it is so much fun. And then that money can still be channeled into future uh, more nursing scholarships. But I've never had that fatigue because there's always been an end game. There's a lot of passion that I can hear in your voice. And doing the stem cells now is like, the next phase and what makes it even more exciting for me selfishly is that a lot of this can be funded by applying for grants there are so many philanthropic institutions out there that have to give away x amount of millions of dollars every year that's why they set up these trusts their role is to give out money so for me it makes it so much easier because i don't have to go to people cap in hand i don't have to 
um, keep asking people to do things for me, but but for the nurses or for for the research or, or for whatever it is. So it's a nice feeling knowing that there actually is an end point and anything that we make on top and get in donations is just going to help even more people. A hard-studying nurse must be pretty overwhelmed with a, a financial donation and help. Well, here's how stupid I felt when I... when it. The whole reason this nursing scholarship came up was on Tracy's very last night, one of the nurses, her name's Louise, I, I remember specifically the, this detail, three months after he died, she actually approached me and said, I found this course, it's at the University of Sydney, it's a Master in Cancer and Hematology Nursing. Do you know any charity that would fund this? And this is why I ended up setting the TLR Foundation. It, it's actually all, it all stems from Louise. When I first started researching this, I went through the Arrow Foundation and I raised some money and I, I originally set up a five-year um, Trace Ritchie Nursing Scholarship. I stupidly thought that they would take a year off and study. <laughs> it's like, oh, no, 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 no. They continue working full time and they study full time and they continue to get paid nicks compared to the some of the management that I, you know, that are, I should say that I work with, some of the management around the corporations. <laughs> it's a different industry, corporate world versus healthcare. It's amazing the disparity, that the difference is huge. So for me, stupidly thinking that they were just going to drop out for a year and do this, no, no, no. They're having to still work full time, still deal with a hugely, deeply emotional job and then go study at night. No, they, they deserve our help constantly, always. Okay, so what I want to do is just to um, talk about you a little bit. Your, yeah, this this will better be quick. I don't like these ones, but okay, we will. You've got a biology background. How did you get into biology in the first place? <laughs> I I grew up in England in a, in a county called Surrey. I decided all the way through life I was going to be a veterinary. Uh, I was going to be a vet and do veterinary science. And then it got to filling out the university application form, and I didn't have any. Like my sister, no one in my family had been to university before, so I couldn't ask, if, you know, my aunties or uncles or my mum and my dad or my sister. I had no idea what I was doing, so I wrote five choices. Vet, 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 and then at the last one I went, I really want to be a marine biologist. And that's the one, oh, I don't think I'm clever enough to be a vet anyway, but I ended up studying marine and freshwater biology at Queen Mary College in, in East London. Um, that's half the reason why I came to Australia. When I, when I first came to Australia, I, I had some contact through a friend of a friend that asked me to do a piece of work on the introduction of marine, exotic marine fauna and flora from ship's ballast water. So like some of the ship would come from say Japan and, and have ballast water it would get here dump the water out with all of these new organisms that either broke out like the crown of thorns or or these particular seaweeds in tasmania um and that's what i thought i was gonna do but then i saw the paycheck that was associated <laughs> and i sold out for money it's not something that i'm proud of <laughs> um I got a, a job offer at Foxtel, 
the first couple of months it was they established Foxtel. My interview was, if you can be here in 45 minutes, you've got a job. Um, so I started off in the in the library, and then I got a job at the Comedy Channel, which is where uh, it suited me. A lot of humor comes from. And then I got a job at A&P, again, because of the money. And I've been there, I can't believe I've been there 20 years, but 20 years has blinked. It has gone. Um, oh, that was it. You, you asked me how I got, why I'm not doing marine biology. Easy. Money. <laughs> <laughs> Something, if I could have been independently wealthy, yes, I would be a marine biologist. But then I started at A&P and... and one of the one of the girls I worked with went off on maternity leave, and they said, "Whoa, who's going to do our budgets?" And I went, "Well, I can do that." I couldn't, so I had to then rough go home and study all about accounting and <laughs> and budgeting, and I've been doing that ever since. Right place at the right time. That's all it is, pure dumb luck, landing on my feet again, as Trace would say. <laughs> <laughs> So it sounds like now trying to promote this stem cells, you're again in the right place at the right time and the right man for the job. And the right man for the job, I hope. Well, no, not quite the right man for the job. And so I've got a couple of people. I've got one specific guy um, from the University of Sydney, a student who's on the TLR board called Delir. Who better to help a 50-year-old man and a bunch of 40-something-year-old board members discuss how or tell us how best to approach males age 18 to 30 at university than a 22-year-old. Some of these young kids now are just... When I was at college, I, I was in the student bar most of the time if I managed to make it to a lecture. These, the whole idea of going on a march or a protest was kind of just a social thing back in the days for, for me and, and the group of people in studying biology. Um, now there's a huge, a much, much bigger sense of social endeavours. People, especially the ones that I've come across at the University of Sydney, they're, they're happy to spend their time um, fighting for social injustice and for making this world a better place. Constantly, constantly impressed. Um, especially when I think about how how young these people are, how much they're studying. Some of them are still working as well to put themselves through. So I've got a really great bunch of young people wanting to help make this happen. And having them on board and engaging them and listening to the the 20 year olds that's who that's who we need to recruit that's who we need to be listening to we need them to be telling us what we it is that we should do and getting them to help us make that happen so it's a huge collaboration huge 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 collaboration so what i want you to do is just if someone wants to find out about a fundraising and b the stem cell um donation how do they check it out or hopefully there's enough information on the TLR website. So if you just go to, to tlr.org.au, there will be links to everything. In the frequently asked questions, I spent months writing that. It's way too complicated. I keep saying that I keep getting told that you need to cut everything down, but the information is there. 
having a biology background, I, I thought, oh, it'd be a really good idea to, to show people what the difference is between stem cells and blood and what the process is. People are really not that interested. So <laughs> I've probably wasted a lot of time, but I've tried to condense it down to a really simple form. So tlr.org.au, it has links on how to join. It has links on future fundraising um, opportunities, which right now <laughs> we just have to wait to see what, what happens with COVID and, and hopefully encourage as many people as possible to get that vaccine. Well, I think you are the right man for the job and in the right place at the right time. So hopefully it'll continue to grow and grow. And I really appreciate spending some time over the bonnet. Neil Pennock, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you. This podcast is brought to you by Marymark Medical. Marymark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick? Ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions. When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Marymark Medical. Contact Marymark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cup to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose spinning foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. Now, they'll help you get down and dirty and save your feet with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it in for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount, and you'll receive 10% off the price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. That's at Gimpy Foam and Rubber. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader which is big and their Positrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20-ton, 8-ton and a 2.5-ton. Plus, they provide side truck hire and even have a roller and a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 228806 and the earth will move for you.